EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by the EPP Group, whose latest podcast discusses how the EU is battling breast cancer. Featuring Deirdre Kloon, MEP, oncologist specialist Dr. Isabel Rubio, and cancer survivor Barbara Wilson. Tune in. We worked very hard to convince the British not to leave the Union. Now they decided different. I hope that they will manage the problems coming from that because I think it's important that there will be good relations between the EU and the UK. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, back here after a week in Berlin covering the German election. And you just heard a voice we might be hearing a lot more of, maybe even in English, in the years to come. The voice of Olaf Scholz, the social democrat whose party came first in that German election on Sunday. That makes him the favourite to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor. As you probably know, the Social Democrats finished just ahead of the Christian Democrats, who've led Germany for the past 16 years, but suffered heavy losses with Merkel not running for re-election. Then further back came the Greens and the Free Democrats, who both look set to be part of the next government one way or another. The far-right alternative for Germany and the left party also won seats in Parliament, but won't be in government. In a moment, we'll talk about what comes next in Germany, what kind of government may emerge, what that may mean for Europe, and how all of this is going down in Brussels. And later in the podcast, you'll hear from German journalist Christiane Hoffmann, who's covered Olaf Scholz for many years, and will give us some insights into what he's like as a politician and a person. The only really human and striking feature is his humour actually, because he tends to tell jokes that no one finds funny except himself, and he tends to laugh about them endlessly. Also in this episode, we'll get the latest on a new effort by the US and Europe to reboot their relationship and agree common rules and standards on technology and trade. That could have big global implications. We'll explore why and how it's going so far. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's guten Abend once again to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Abend. And I think you and I, frankly, have seen more than enough of each other lately and talked more than enough about German politics uh, between ourselves, uh, both for our listeners and in our numerous other conversations. So I'm delighted to say that we have uh, brought in uh, Suzanne Probably Lynch. Probably for the next our- decade. Yeah, maybe I think we may have more than covered our quota, um, but uh, I thought it would be very nice to get a fresh voice to bring in Suzanne Lynch, our uh, Brussels Playbook co-author. Hi, Suzanne. Great to be with you guys. Good to have you. Um, let's dive into it. Uh, I think we can really look forward here. Obviously, we've spent quite a lot of time. We had a special edition of the podcast looking at the results. I think our listeners will be familiar with them. And I, I wanted actually, Matt, to kind of um, pivot off a conversation that you've just had. It was a political live event. It was a panel discussion among members of the three parties who are really the favourites to form the next government as things stand, the Social Democrats, the Free Democrats and the Greens. You also had an esteemed foreign policy expert in your midst. If this is to be the next government, what struck you from that conversation, both in terms of areas where you could see broad agreement and areas where you think 
this is going to be really tough for them to come to an agreement on a common line in the coalition. The main thing I'd say was how often I heard the word compromise or that they kind of made signals in that direction that they distinguish between the campaign where you obviously hear a lot of vociferous rhetoric and the kind of task of building a coalition and governing. So I think that the interesting thing for me and the main takeaway from this conversation was that all of these parties want to govern and they're willing to do whatever it takes to use a famous European phrase to make it happen, even though there are some very sticky issues, especially when it comes to environmental policy for the Greens and fiscal policy, especially the European dimension for the FDP, the Free Democrats. Mm. As we know, the last time it was uh, the Greens and the FDP, they were negotiating with the Conservatives. It went on for a long time, then it broke down and we ended up with a different coalition. You do just get the sense here that the parties this time feel they want to get on with this. I think there's no doubt about that. And there seems to be an agreement already that they can't even use the same process that they relied on last time, which was very German in a way. They got together, wanted to get all their ducks in a row, and, and they had all kinds of charts and agreements with open spaces in the text where they couldn't agree, and they tried to whittle that down. And it looked more like the European treaty at the end of the day than a what was really just a preliminary negotiating agreement. And I think they look back at that and see, you know, nobody can afford to do that, to do that again. It took them almost a month just to start those talks. So they were in October when those discussions started. And then it took another month before they realized that uh, it wasn't going to work out, or at least the FDP leader, Christian Lindner, who's also a big player in the current discussions, pulled out. And it wasn't good for anybody. Mm. Uh, Suzanne, you were with us in Berlin in our uh, glamorous accommodation and uh, been back in Brussels for a few days. What are the, the key things you think that people are looking out for? What are people asking you about? Well, I think the first thing to say really is that the European Commission are officially declining to comment on this. You know, really, the reality is that it's the only story in town. People are all wondering what's happening in Berlin, how this is all going to play out. But to answer your question, look, there are a few thematic areas that our people are very uh, interested in climate. And Matt just uh, mentioned that. I mean, how is this going to play out? Let's see how the compromises go with the coalition talks. But the presence of the Green Party, very obviously climate, a huge issue there. Uh, the European Union is also considering climate. Um, it's, it's impinging on all sorts of policy uh, discussions here in Brussels. So that's going to be something to watch. Uh, the other one is finance. Very little happens in Brussels without Germany's consent. And I think it's particularly the case when it comes to finance. Memories of the Eurozone crisis are still very fresh in a lot of countries' minds. And Germany's position on this, its more conservative fiscal position, is something that's really been a theme and has dominated the Eurozone in particular, uh, its reaction, its response to the various crises over the last years. So, you know, interestingly, Schultz has not really weighed in on the big issue that's going to really come into focus in the next few months, which is, should there be a relaxation of Brussels' tight fiscal rules? And they have been put on ice uh, during the pandemic. And a lot of countries are now saying, let's have a more broad-based uh, revision of these rules and really are they fit for purpose. Everyone is going to be watching to see what Schultz says about that. He's kind of dodged the topic. Um, so I think it's going to be an interesting one to watch. 
I think that's a good point, and I think this is really why the FDP is going to probably play a crucial role in this coalition if it comes to this traffic light coalition. Because with them, Schultz can turn around and say, well, I would like to you know, show more solidarity with our, our friends in Southern Europe and so forth. But, you know, my coalition partner here, Christian Littner, is not going to allow me to. So we can't really go as far as you would like. And I think we're already hearing some noises like that. I think conversely that this issue of climate change, uh, which is obviously crucial to the Greens, is going to be used, I think, in this agreement with them, assuming that they come to an agreement to kind of paper over some of these, uh, you know, financial issues when it it comes to raising taxes, which the FDP doesn't want to do, and maybe being a little bit more lenient about certain things by creating exceptions for, you know, measures aimed at combating climate change, because, you know, they can argue, well, this isn't you know, just about preserving the budget and the debt break that they have in Germany. It's it's about fighting climate change, protecting the, the climate and our future and so forth. So I think, you know, that's the kind of compromise we're likely to see here. Mm. There was one other area which I was quite struck by in your discussion where it seemed to me there could certainly be disagreement there, a pretty important one, especially in terms of the transatlantic relationship, and that was defence policy. Where do you see the parties lining up there, Matt? And, um, you know, where do you think they'll end up landing? Well, I asked the question of whether the SPD would stick to the uh, 2% commitment that Germany has made towards NATO. This is the commitment to spend 2% of GDP on defense or to work towards that goal is what it says in the agreement and got a pretty wishy-washy answer that, yes, of course, Germany under SPD leadership would want to continue to spend more, yet that goal is not going to be enshrined in whatever coalition agreement comes out of this. And that says to me, also knowing how contentious these issues are within both the SPD and the Greens, I suspect very strongly that we are going to see another kind of backing away from the defense commitments Germany has made. We'll see a lot of lip service to these issues. But when it comes down to brass tacks of actually spending money on equipment, uh, I think it's going to be a very tough sell for the rank and file of both of those parties. And then the question is, how does the the FDP respond to that? One issue that is really urgent here that came up in the debate is what Germany does on this question of nuclear sharing, which is an agreement that Germany made in 1979 to transport American nuclear weapons to Russia in the event of a nuclear attack. I mean, when you say transport, I don't think they'd be, you know, they wouldn't be delivering them. Right? No, no, they'd, they'd be delivering be, them fairly direct be, fashion. Exactly. Right? The, the, the commitment yeah. is to put them on bombers and to fly them east uh, to the former Soviet Union. And, you know, let's hope that never happens. But this commitment is still there. Uh, The problem is, is that the planes that Germany uh, used back then or bought back then to do this are at the end of their lifespan. They need to be replaced. This is also leaving aside whether or not the SPD and the Greens want to continue to honor this commitment. The investment here would be considerable. And the Germans have been kind of kicking this can down the road as well. 
Mm. But one area where it did sound like the FDP were, if you like, more pro-European, if you like to use that kind of very broad term, was in defence, right? They do seem to be interested in the idea of the European Defence Fund of trying to do more in a kind of pan-European level in defence. Absolutely. And I think that this is the way they can sell it to their own voters to say, well, this isn't Germany remilitarizing. This is about a common European approach. And we're also factoring in questions like development and climate change and and all of these sorts of issues. But at the end of the day, they have to decide whether or not they want to spend more money on equipment. And as our speaker uh, in the discussion from the Greens, Sergei Lagondinsky said, I think, you know, the Greens are um, uh, a pacifist uh, party and have pacifist roots, but the Greens uh, also are not blind to the situation in the world. And, the situation and in- you know, none of these issues really come naturally to them. Mm. Suzanne, anything else you think is, is going to be, you know, being watched most keenly? I mean, I guess the other thing is just that question of leadership, who becomes the chancellor and how, how that affects the relationship with Brussels, with the European Commission, and particularly the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, who you know is from a party who, as things look right now, are no longer going to be in the German government. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that one of the most profound implications is going to be the personality and, and the presence of the new German chancellor. And these things matter in politics. They particularly matter in EU politics when leaders get around the table and that kind of chemistry and personality uh, dynamic actually you know, shapes decision-making all the time. One really interesting aspect of this, if, as we say, you know, we presume this traffic-like coalition does emerge from these negotiations, is that uh, the EPP, the centre-right group in the Parliament and around the Council, they'll have lost Merkel. And I mean, I can remember back in the day here covering Eurozone summits at the height of the financial crisis, and you would see the EPP finance minister, centre-right finance ministers, go into a room before the Eurozone meeting and basically decide what was going to happen. And then they would go into the meeting. The fact that Germany now may have a socialist leader is going to completely change those dynamics around the European table, both in the European Parliament and I think just equally as significantly around the EU Council table. And then exactly what you said there as well about von der Leyen, that's going to be very, very interesting to watch now. I mean, Merkel was an ally of hers. You know, she's surrounded by people from that political tradition in Germany. And the fact, I think she's kind of, she's aware of that. She's looking for allies now. And a lot of people would see her recent affiliation with France on a few issues. Might be, some would cynics would say, an early attempt to kind of shore up her support base. But that is definitely going to be interesting. And then, obviously, Look, Angela Merkel, you know, having that longevity, having that presence and having that authority, whoever was going to follow her is just not going to have that. Um, obviously, France, Macron in particular, sees an opportunity for himself. And we've seen that kind of strengthening of French power around the council table over the last few years under Macron. So that's going to be interesting to watch. And really, anybody taking over after Merkel was always going to face that challenge. People should think back to when Merkel took over in 2005. And she was by no means a natural in this position. Uh, She had a a fairly rocky beginning, and I don't think anybody even in 2007 was saying in the European Council, well, thank God we've got Angela Merkel here to uh, take us by the hand. This is something that evolved over time. It's a natural process, and whoever that is probably won't have the same kind of baptism of fire that Merkel was subjected to, especially if it's Olaf Scholz 
who is a very seasoned figure at the European level. Yeah, I mean, I th- certainly think that's true. He's a lot more experienced than Angela Merkel was when she came to that job. She'd been she'd been a party leader, she'd been the parliamentary group leader, and she had been a federal minister. But Schultz comes to it with a you know a senior federal ministry job behind him, also having been the head of a city state at Hamburg and being older than Merkel when he came. Right? I mean, he's been around a long, long time. He's been doing this a while, so maybe that counts for continuity. But I do think it would be interesting to see whether there is a Suzanne's suggests a bit of a shifting of the tectonic plates in terms of party power with the Christian Democrats losing their heavyweight in Merkel, if you like. Well, we'll leave it there. Matt, Suzanne, thanks very much. Thank you. Great to join you. And now let's turn to another big story this week for Brussels and the transatlantic relationship. That's the first meeting of the EU-US Trade and Technology Council in Pittsburgh. It's all a lot more interesting and important than it might sound. To bring us up to speed, we have Mark Scott, our chief technology correspondent and author of our weekly transatlantic tech newsletter, The Digital Bridge. Hi, Mark. Andrew, how are you? Good, thanks. Let's get right to it. The Trade and Technology Council. Give us a little bit of the backstory. What is it and why does it matter? As you said, it's not the sexiest title, but it does have some importance. So President van der Leyen announced this back in December last year as a way to help reset the transatlantic relationship with the US. It then got reaffirmed when Biden came over to Brussels in June in terms of, okay, we have some issues on trade and technology that we are looking for some alignment with. And that involves everything from what to do about China, what to do about Facebook and some of the big platforms and what to do about data. And so the idea with them meeting in Pittsburgh this week on Wednesday was to lay out some of those challenges and figure out, okay, fine, we have very different approaches in some areas. We have similar views in others. What can we do and how can we do this quickly? Mm. And what would you put in the two baskets, if you like? Where are they kind of singing broadly from the same hymn sheet and should be able to to reach some kind of common agreement? And where are things more difficult? I think everything's difficult. I mean, <laughs> If you talk to US and European officials, they say, well, you know, we're all democracies, we love each other, and that's fine at a top level. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, the US wants this to be a very anti-China focus and the idea of to try and keep Beijing out of buying up European and US tech companies, keeping sort of the technology and trade stuff, you know, within the Western sphere. The Europeans, because it's Europe, are divided on that issue and what to do with China. I mean, there's obviously a realization that China has geopolitical interests. And, you know, nominally the EU, you know, would like to push back against authoritarianism, but the EU is divided on how far to go on that. And so I think from, a, you know, where are the low hanging fruit options, the Trade and Tech Council, the fact that it's just happening, I'm told is a win. Well, not only is it amazing to be here, you know, the hospitality, the level of organization, you know, even the flags are behaving well. The fact that they've got Margaret Vestager and Valdez de Moscas in a room with Anthony Blinken, Gina Raimundo from the Commerce Secretary, that is a success, I'm told. It's a reset of sorts, right? Of sorts. I mean, my view would be you've had a year to do this. Is this all you've come down to? And I think without getting too much bogged into the weeds, the fact that the French tried to undermine it last week and actually postpone it because of this fact with, with Washington, that has left a little bit of a sour taste in people's mouths. 
Right, and that was due mainly to the AUKUS arrangement that we talked about last week, that big security pact uh, between Australia, the US and the UK, which pushed France out of a massive submarine deal. And uh, France took that, uh, as we know, very badly. And as you say, sought to at least postpone this meeting, but it did take place in Pittsburgh and we did get a joint statement. Did anything stand out for you from that statement or was it really just very much, yeah, we've met and now we'll get on to the difficult stuff? Um, I think a couple of things stood out. So there was a joint position on what to do about artificial intelligence in terms of should there be limits and restrictions on the use of that technology. Europe and the US do not see eye to eye on what those limits should be, but there was a broad consensus that we shouldn't be taking a China view of using AI to control the masses. For me, one of the one of the big takeaways is our discussions on artificial intelligence. That minds are meeting for artificial intelligence to be trustworthy, to be human-centered, uh, and to have a risk-based approach. Which so I think that was quite important, and you know, commission officials told me they were quite positive and optimistic that they were able to get that language in. On the US side, they were quite specific points around so-called export controls and investment screening, as that basically means limits on who can take over companies and where we can export those technologies to. And you need to read that through a China prism. So the US was quite optimistic and positive for the fact that they were able to get that language in there. It's all a bit woolly and opaque, but the fact that it's there in itself shows that the US was able to sort of push a China line and from the European perspective, the AI element showed that they were able to put in their own AI principles and rights that are being pushed through in Brussels right now. Right. So they both can point to things that they say they got out of it. Where does it go from here, Mark? Do we know when they're going to meet next or what might be kind of next on the agenda for them? Sure. So right now, there are 10 working groups as part of this Trade and Tech Council. Everything from talking about global trade to platform regulation, those talks and meetings will go on. They are left to sort of the civil servants to sort of work that out. Ironically, after what France tried to do to scupper this thing, the next meeting likely will be held in France next year in the spring. So, you know, victory for Macron in that regard. I think... Although that makes it more difficult for him to postpone it again, right? If it's actually in France, <laughs> then he loses the prestige in a presidential election year. But okay, so the next big one is in France. Well, it's not confirmed yet, but the next meeting will be held where the rotating presidency will be held. So that is, it's France. Right. And I think we've heard from Margarita Vestar that she would like it to be not in some of the more glamorous uh, locations that uh, the EU sometimes uses for these kind of meetings, but perhaps somewhere that reflects more of the kind of the real world, just as Pittsburgh, I think, was chosen partly for that reason. Great. OK, Mark, I think that covers it. Thanks very much for your time. And we'll look forward to following this with you in the months ahead. Thanks for having me. After this short break, we'll explore the question much of Europe and the world is asking these days, just who is Olaf Scholz? Stay with us. A message from the EPP Group. 355,000. The number of breast cancer diagnoses across the EU in the last year alone. But breast cancer is preventable. It's treatable and it's beatable. And we must keep talking about it. With Breast Cancer Month ahead, Deirdre Clune MEP warns a uniform approach is needed across EU countries. Tune in to the latest EPP Group podcast. 
Olaf Scholz is in pole position to replace Angela Merkel as the next German Chancellor. But who exactly is Scholz and what kind of leader could we expect? To help us answer those questions, our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, caught up in Berlin earlier this week with Der Spiegel journalist, Christiana Hoffmann. Hello, I'm Christiana Hoffmann, a writer with Spiegel magazine in Berlin. And you've been covering Olaf Scholz for quite a while. Yes, I've been covering Olaf Scholz and I've been covering German foreign politics and SPD and other parties during my career. I've also been a foreign correspondent, actually, for 10 years, but now I'm in Berlin for almost 15 years. Okay. And we're sitting in your beautiful apartment in Berlin. Right. And we just locked away the cats. We <laughs> locked away the cats because they also really wanted to be on the podcast. Uh, but we didn't know how much information they had about Olaf Scholz to share. So not that much, I must say. But you do. And I was wondering if you could maybe give us your initial impressions of him when you first started covering him as a politician. Well, it's always the same. What, what the first impression is that he is an extremely sober, down-to-earth, pragmatic person. But then, if you come to talk to him uh, in a more background way, or maybe at uh, some occasions where you meet in Berlin, the only really human and striking feature is his humor, actually, because he tends to tell jokes that no one finds funny except himself, and he tends to laugh about them endlessly. So this is, you know, there's a certain contrast to his very pragmatic, extremely sober, mild-tempered character. Do you remember any specific jokes that you could share with us? Oh, I'm so bad at jokes. No, I, I don't think I remember. But I, I remember that, you know, everyone is standing and, you know, sort of rolling their eyes. And when will he get to the point? And then why should this be funny? But I'm curious if that has sort of maybe changed over time as his political profile has grown. Or has that always been the case that he's had this sort of humor, uh, at least in a personal setting? It's actually something you only see in the, in a personal setting. What I think has changed is, I mean, he has been perceived as rather arrogant by people who work with him, but also by journalists, by other people. I mean, he is obviously a very intelligent person and he knows it and he lets people feel it. And this has worked against him in a way. He was considered to be arrogant, and I think he understood that it was, this was harming him, and he has become much more modest. So maybe it would help our listeners to understand a bit more about his background. Where does he come from, and what sort of educational background does he have? What was his upbringing like? Actually, very little is known about his biography, and everything we know is not very interesting. So, um, I mean, he grew up in Hamburg in a family of, of three boys. He finished school in Hamburg. He started university in Hamburg. He studied law. 
he finished university in Hamburg. He started to work as a lawyer in Hamburg. So there's not much uh, that is so interesting about his early biography, except he became a social democrat very early on when he was still in school and then was very active in the party's youth organization, the so-called Jusos, Young Socialists. And what is interesting is that he had Marxist positions at that time. He was very critical of capitalism, of imperialistic NATO. And after he had been a partner at a law firm in, in Hamburg, he actually started to become a professional politician. And I would say, if you can say anything about Olaf Scholz as a politician, then it is that he is so professional. There doesn't seem to be so much of a private life and so many interests apart from politics. He doesn't have children, which connects him with Merkel interesting in an interesting way. And he is married to a politician. So if you had to sum him up in five words, how would you do that? Oh, my God. He has a not very pleasant nickname, okay. uh, which is called the Scholzo March. That was at his time as a uh, secretary general for SPD party when Gerhard Schröder was chancellor. And Gerhard Schröder was attacked a lot at that time for his politics. And uh, Olaf Scholz uh, defended him. And he had to defend him all the time. And he always did it in this very boring way of repeating the same sentences. And that's why, what, why they called him the Scholz Automat, like a speaking uh, automat, automatic speaker, the Scholz Automat. So, yes, there is certainly nothing charismatic about him whatsoever. A few words to characterize him, then this absence of charisma is certainly something to mention. But um, the second is, uh, I would say, really his pragmatism. You know, uh, at his first uh, political job, when he was an, something like an interior minister in the state of Hamburg, he was uh, pretty much of a law and order guy. And, you know, also coming from this very leftist background, it's interesting. And it's a recipe that he pursued also when he became the mayor of Hamburg. And it worked out very well. After being with the Gerhard Schröder government in Berlin, he went back, he returned to Hamburg and was elected mayor of Hamburg. Um, Are there any sort of notable policy positions that he managed to push through or any events that happened during that time? He was uh, quite successful in uh, dealing with uh, the lack of housing. So those were the topics of a big German city, and he handled them quite successfully, except for uh, when the G20 summit uh, was in, in Hamburg in, in 2017, when he completely misjudged the situation and thought the protests uh, could be handled easily. And he said it was going to be like uh, the annual birthday of Hamburg's harbor. And this became really a saying that haunted him because the riots and protests got out of control and Hamburg was sort of the streets of Hamburg were burning for a night. And he had really misjudged and mishandled this. And this really harmed his image 
because he always paints himself as having under everything under control. This is part of his image. Yes, I'm boring, but then, you know, you can rely on me. And are you surprised to see the success now to this point where he is the likely chancellor? Yes, I was surprised. And I, I think everyone was except for Charles himself and maybe his closest aides, because um, he and his aides actually always said uh, they, they exactly predicted the scenario that we've seen that in the summer when people would recognize and realize that Merkel is not going to be there anymore, they would look for someone who resembles her. And he always said, I'm the one who is in the best position to be recognized as her here, even though I'm not from her party, I'm not from the CDU or, or the union. And can you give me a sense of what some of his critics might say about him and maybe also on the flip side, what his biggest fans might say about Olaf Scholz? It would be fair to criticize him as um, being so little charismatic and not even trying to be in a way, you know, because charisma obviously is an important quality in politics. And it's also being an orator, trying to argue passionately. All these are qualities that uh, are needed in, in politics. And, and Germans are very reluctant about these qualities. Uh, they don't look for them very much, but I think you could criticize that. And the other point is that he has had a couple of scandals in his career that he handled badly. He wasn't the reason for these scandals like uh, the Wirecard uh, failure when it turned out that uh, Wirecard had a partly criminal leadership. And it was a company that uh, was supposed to be supervised by a part of the finance ministry, which also Charles was heading. And uh, they failed to recognize and millions of shareholders lost a lot of money. And he never really admitted to having done anything wrong. So, and this is uh, only one of, of several scandals where, as I said, it wasn't him who was the origin of the problem, but he, he also didn't prevent it. And he, the way, you know, he sort of tried to play them down, ignore them, that showed a politician who was not really willing to think about, you know, what is my responsibility? And what about his fans on the flip side? You said you've spoken over the years to so many people who know him well. What do they have to say about him? Well, actually, it's not so much about, let's say, his character, but it's about the way he managed to, at least for a period of now almost two years, reconcile the Social Democrats with themselves and bring them together. And for the first time, in 20 years, he managed to sort of reunite this party. I'm not sure whether this is going to hold. It's still an open question, but it's mm -hmm. it's something that he managed in an admirable way. And mm -hmm. should he become chancellor, what sort of chancellor could we expect? Well, I think that those qualities that I've named will play very much pragmatism, Modesty. I mean, that's what he said in his press conference today, the first press conference after his election victory. He said, we are going to lead these coalition talks in 
a most modest and pragmatic way. Those were the adjectives that he used, and that's very much characterizes himself. We are going to see a European, really. I think that's also what he said uh, in his first press conference, that he was looking for a more unified and more sovereign Europe. I was going to ask about the expected interaction with the EU and the rest of the world more broadly. Mm. Yes, I, I think he's going to put the EU more into the center than um, Merkel did. Why is that? I mean, he is not a, a European by heart as uh, Armin Laschet is, but Scholz al al always had uh, links to the French, quite close links. Being from Hamburg, there's a link to Great Britain, although I know they are not in the EU anymore. And interestingly, in his press conference on Monday, he also had a very interesting um, remark on, on Great Britain. But uh, What did he say? Well, he was asked by a British reporter whether he would send trucks to help help the British in, in the problem at the moment. And he said... The free movement of labor is part of the European Union, and we worked very hard to convince the British not to leave the Union. Now they decided different. I hope that they will manage the problems coming from that, because I think it's important that there will be good relations between the EU and uh, the UK. And then he said also, think about paying them better. So uh, so that was quite funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the rest of the world, maybe looking... Yes, I, I think towards Russia and China, we're going to see a lot of continuity. I, I think um, uh, the SPD and especially the right-wing SPD has always uh, uh, been uh, in favor of close ties and business ties. And he has uh, stressed uh, the good relationship with the USA that should... Uh, persist even though you had differences in certain understandings and even he made it very clear that you know yes i want a more united and more sovereign europe but this makes it all the more important to keep ties with the us he tried not to build a controversy out of these two that was very obvious Maybe I'll just pose one final question, which is the question that we're asking ourselves in this episode of EU Confidential, which is, who is Olaf Scholz? He is a professional politician, very, very middle ground. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate okay. it. You're welcome. Thanks to Christina for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have in this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast so you get every episode automatically in your feed on your device of choice. And if you have a minute or two, maybe even right now, we'd appreciate if you'd give us a rating or even a review, especially if you're a fan. Maybe you've enjoyed our recent Germany coverage and would like to let the world know. And whether you're a fan or not, you can always contact our podcast team directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. We can handle the feedback, positive or negative. It's generally remarkably thoughtful. And we do try to respond to everyone eventually. It just takes us a little while sometimes. So for the moment, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Lucas Kotkamp and to executive producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.